On this episode of the podcast, I have with me Vineeth Loganathan. He is the Director of Machine Learning at Viral Games. We're going to be talking about building out your program, right? So obviously, you have to have a vision. You have to have some steps involved. Data and delivering value is, is one of the main things every data leader is involved in. And I think Vineeth has kind of gone through that as uh, his role in Viral Gains is new. I'm really excited to, to see him share some of that with us. And, and I think we're going to really try to see, yeah, how does he find that balance to deliver value with data? Because there's always that notion of short-term, medium-term, long-term, but yet those data needs do not stop. Vineeth, excited to have you on the show. Likewise. Thank you, Amir. It's, been, it's, it's, it's great to be on the show. Awesome. All right. Before we dive in, uh, tell us, uh, what does Viral Games do? Yeah. So um, Viral Games is a marketing tech company. Um, and what we have is this idea called using zero-party data for ads. So think of the world of marketing, right? There's first-party data where like, you as a company is collecting data. So think of Amazon's of the world, Google's of the world. You search a query, they get data on what you're searching for. And then there's third-party data where um, data providers give you data, give you access to data that can be used to target you for marketing. Zero-party data is this idea that customers are voluntarily sharing information with you. So you might have seen surveys in YouTube, surveys in Instagram, where it asks you questions about, hey, are you interested in cars? Are you interested in shoes? So a customer is voluntarily sharing that information. So Viral Games gathers zero-party data in the open web. So we, we're not particularly tied to any one platform. Like we're not just in Google, we're not just in Amazon, we're not just in Facebook. In the open web, we ask questions, we gather zero-party data. And using that data, we train machine learning models to scale that audience up. Because for example, like survey responses are pretty low number, and that's not enough to make an audience. But what we do is we train machine learning models to find what we call voice-alike customers. So customers who are similar to someone who said, I'm interested in cars, let's find everyone else who's interested in cars in the open web, and that becomes an audience. So we're a zero-party data um, audience marketplace, if you will. Um, and um, the, the idea is to um, let customers share what they're interested in and using that data to build audiences. Awesome. I, I guess, um, you know, people can obviously go on your LinkedIn, but you've joined the company pretty recently. And part of the, the reason you're on board is to help you know, build out those type of data capabilities that that seemingly would be a great fit for viral gains. And I guess we talked about, you know, obviously you, you're trying to deliver value. Um, I think every data leader, data leader I've ever spoken to is focused on delivering value. And it is a challenge, as we kind of talked about, because you're not always able to deliver that immediate win because you do have to put in some plans in place and, and, and stakeholders are not always uh, excited to be patient because they have needs. Um, in your case, maybe, maybe tell us a little bit, you know, high level, you, you're not, you're now there, um, you know, a couple of months, uh, you'd mentioned you're trying to make that three-year vision, that case for it, kind of the needs for the company. And, and as you are new and, and you've had time to kind of assess and put that plan together, what was that process like for you? Because you obviously have to ramp up on, you know, some of the some of the company internals and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, exactly. So I think when we think about delivering value with data, right? Um, generally, data science teams have this reputation that like we go hide in dark rooms, work on something for six months, pop our heads out every six months and say, we're still working on it, be patient. And then we go back into our dark rooms, continue tinkering on stuff. Data science teams tend to have this reputation. 
And the way to overcome that is the way I think about it is like exactly like you said, there's like um, short term, medium term, long term plans, right? There are things that are urgent that need immediate action. So if there's a sales call tomorrow for a client and they need a bunch of reports to talk to them about, you, you cannot tell them to wait three months. Like that's that's just not going to happen. So we need to set up the team in a way that we're enabling immediate success for people who depend on this data, right? Like we, um, so staffing the team to build dashboards, build reporting tools, build automations, so that these teams that are having frontline conversations aren't depending on a data team to write a bunch of queries, pull some reports, put some tech together. That's a long turnaround, right? So enabling frontline teams to have access to good, high quality data should be sort of the baseline. So set that up first. That should be the first thing we do. And then medium term, start thinking about, okay, now that we have the baseline in place, what do we do next? How do we derive more value out of the data? And that's when you start thinking about um, sort of going from this notion of quick ad hoc reports to auto-generated pushed out reports, right? Like you send them every week. Hey, here's how all your accounts are doing. Here's how all the like sort of automations. Here's like sort of low hanging fruits on your account. Here's where we're seeing opportunities. So automation for automation for quick insights, if you will, right? Like don't expect them to go through 10 pages of dashboards to find that one nugget of information. Give them that nugget of information that is useful, right? And then more long-term is closing the loop on this whole system, right? Like you we gave you this insight, you used that insight, you took some action, what is the outcome that action drove, right? Like that's the closing of the loop. So that is where I think a lot of this idea of using machine learning to identify act, the relationship between actions to outcomes, right? Like using, using machine learning experimentation and inference sort of methods to understand what is the relationship between action and outcome and sort of like closing the loop, the entire, like closing the entire loop. That I think is like, should be the long-term long -term goal. And when you go through this process, the first thing is to make sure that the stakeholders aren't blocked, right? So unblocking the stakeholders or like sort of proving your value as a data team, right? Like at the end of the day, data teams are there to help generate more revenue or save costs. Like there's only two things the data teams are here to do. You either make the company more money or you save the company more money. Um, and you have to prove your value before you can ask for, I need, I need, a million dollars to go build this thing, right? Like before you do that, you have to prove why the million dollars invested in the data team actually delivers more than a million dollars of value. And you do that by actually showcasing what your, what, what your capabilities are. I, I, I like that. I like that. Uh, you know, there's a few steps to you know, trying to build that plan and that, that, that vision out. I, I guess maybe let's start at the top. So you, you kind of talked about that, that, the basic, the fundamentals. So obviously, as you want to deliver more complex, uh, complete solutions, you need you need the fundamentals in place. When you're sitting down with a stakeholder who's obviously you know envisioning a lot of more advanced capabilities, and you're evaluating those fundamentals to make sure things are in place, how does that conversation go? Because it might not be what they want to hear. That hey, before we learn how to sprint, we might have to really just basically learn how to crawl. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So in conversations like that, I think it's important to like important to understand. Um, I, I call this the question behind the question. Okay, you want this cool thing. What do you want that cool thing to do? Right. It's, it's especially with generative AI. I think there's a lot of value to be unlocked using generative AI. No doubt about it. Right. Like it's it's been, in my opinion, a step function change in productivity of teams 
across the board, like marketing teams, sales teams, customer success teams, data teams. There's no software engineering teams. There's like no part of the organization where generative AI is not delivering productivity gains. But when a stakeholder comes and says, hey, you know what would be cool? Like a generative AI tool that automatically does this. And then you ask them why, like, why do you want this to be automatically done? Then they tell you, this is the problem we're facing. This is this is where we're stuck. This is where we think we could use some help. So trying to understand the, instead of being a, what is, like a, a like hammer that looks for a nail, right? Like try to find what the problem is and then try to understand, okay, what is the quickest, lowest hanging fruit way of addressing this problem, right? Like, okay, if I just do this, if I just do this one thing, we get to 80% of your, we solve 80% of your problem. And that's going to take me and my team three weeks of work. But if you want this super cool, fully automated chatbot way of like, you want to just like speak to a speaker, ask for insights and the speaker responds back with insights. I'm going to need like three years and 30 people to build this, right? Like that's the hundred percent solution. That would be cool, but I need three years and 30 people. Or I could just do this thing where like there's a bunch of series of automations that we can do in like four weeks that gets you 80% of the way there, right? Like, so trying to understand what is the problem and trying to find out the shortest path to addressing, let's say 80% of that problem, right? And that's the way I would approach it essentially. As you're putting in, you know, as, as we're kind of talked about, you know, especially at a younger company you know, company trying to build out capabilities, even a, a legacy company that's trying to build out capabilities, those fundamentals that you're looking for, to be the building blocks so that you can deliver those advanced capabilities. What are some of those fundamentals that need to be put in place? Yes, that's a great question. So this is, so I've seen this both in like the really small younger companies like, like viral games. And I've also spent time at team companies like Microsoft and Airbnb. And I've noticed this everywhere, right? Like the first thing is um, in one of my previous teams, like one of the VPs of product, she joked that, we don't have an accounting problem. We have a counting problem. It was so bad that three different teams would report three different numbers saying for the exact same thing. So like, let's say there's a metric that says um, how many users took action A, right? Like some random action thing. Some, some any, It could be anything. Define that action to be whatever you want it to be. There are three different teams that are responsible for this. And three different teams are saying three different numbers that are not even in the same ballpark, Right. So it's uh, so making sure that you have to get to a common understanding of what your definitions of metrics are. I think that's like the first step. What is your definition of this metric? If you're saying a user is churned, what is your definition? Let's say someone says, oh, if they haven't done any action in 10 days, they're churned. And someone else says they haven't done an action in 30 days, they're churned. And then someone else says they haven't done an action in a year, they're churned. And they're all calling it churn. And these three different churn numbers are like bubbling up to different teams. And then there's, there's not even a common understanding of what churn means. So define very clearly what that metric means. And then work backwards from the metric and see where are we collecting this data? Where are we gathering this data? Are we missing any data? Are we are we ignoring, let's say, a part of the pipeline? So making sure that the quality, the data that is feeding this metric is of high quality, right? Like you do that by doing some automated data quality checks, making sure that the data that is feeding this metric is of high quality. Then you start reporting on this number and like get, get everybody in a room and say, this is what we're going to use as the definition of churn. Do you all agree? And then let, let, let's say that everybody is on board. Then you start measuring it. Then you start deploying it. Then you start using that metric to take action. Now we see churns down or up week over week. How do we address this? And then you go find the root cause of what caused it, try to improve, right? So the first step really, and this has happened, like mature organizations, young organizations, there is no place where this hasn't happened. So first things first is to get to a common understanding of a definition of what the numbers you are saying actually mean. And even that takes careful thought, 
clear data pipelining, clear definitions of metrics. And these definitions should live in a central place, right? Like where anybody in the company can go and say, okay, what is churn? And then they go find the churn metric. And then along with the metric, they find a definition that says anyone who hasn't taken any action on the site in 30 days is considered churn. Like everybody should have access to the definition, should have access to where that definition came from and what that metric is. So I think that's the first step really. I, I like that. And um, I guess as you're, you know, if you can kind of envision future solutions, you're obviously doing that. You're you're talking about, hey, we need common definitions. We need to make sure the fundamentals are put in place. I guess in your job as a director of machine learning, you have been at other companies, you know, Airbnb, Microsoft, and um, Amazon. You've, you've built pretty elaborate systems and solutions. As you're kind of you know, building that roadmap into your mind and you're looking at the fundamentals and you're planning step two in the process or future steps in the maturity, you know, um, process. Are you starting to plan out some of those moves going, well, you know, if we're going to apply some NLP or we're going to look at some opportunities to automate some basic repeatable tasks, I'm going to need these components. So I might as well factor that in. Totally. So I think with, with data science, um, especially in machine learning, the path to actual business impact is actually longer than people generally anticipate. The reason is a lot of models will show improvements when you run them offline, but when you deploy the model online, they, especially if you have a system that that where you can hope, assuming there's a robust experimentation system where you can compare, okay, here's the baseline, here's the machine learning version of this system that we're trying to improve. A lot of times, the first iteration may not even show significant improvements on the outcomes you're trying to drive. Then it's a question of going back to the drawing board, finding out, okay, are there subsegments where it's working? Are there subsegments where it's underperforming? Find out why there may be like data quality issues. There may be like the, the way we train the model, there may, be, there, may, there may have been like leakage, right? Like data leakage when you train. So there's so many things that could go wrong in going from an idea to actually delivering business value using machine learning that you have to factor in. Through this process, you might identify, oh, actually, this data source that we were using, we're aggregating it like this, and we should have used the raw data instead of the aggregated data, right? Which means you need to go one step back in the pipeline, start pulling that data, feeding that to the model. So you have to have bandwidth allocated to make data quality improvements as you go, as you in investigate and find issues in the model, right? So it's uh, it, it, it has to be baked in. So if, if you talk to your team of machine learning engineers and say, hey, here's my problem. Here's how we're planning to solve it. Think of the steps, right? Like data acquisition, model training, validation, testing, deployment, testing live, right? Like it, in this stage, you ask them for an estimate, they'll give you, okay, we can do like train, test, deploy, train, test, validate, deploy will take, let's say, two months. But then you have to anticipate that there's some data quality issue and you go back to the data engineering team and say, hey, actually, we need this other pipeline. And data quality, data engineering team may be on their own schedule, right? They have their own priorities. So now you have to factor that in. So it's always important to clarify things upfront to your stakeholders that the lead time for impact on any machine learning project is pretty long. Like you cannot just train, test, deploy, find value in the first iteration. It takes multiple iterations, which include data quality improvements. So you have to factor that time in while you make plans and communicate that very early with stakeholders so that the expectations are set correctly, right? So it, like even in steps two, even in step three, 
throughout these steps, you will still identify issues upstream that you will have to fix while you're building it. It's sort of like a, the image of uh, the, the old sort of comic image of someone sitting on a train and like fixing the tracks as the train is moving. That's that's how like that's how it feels when you're trying to deliver like value with machine learning, business value with machine learning. Like you like while while your model's being developed, you identify ten more issues that you need to go back and fix. It's a it's an iterative process for sure. Absolutely. I guess something that came to mind as as you're explaining that was, you know, as you're as you're building out more capabilities and you're introducing the need for new skills to the company, right? You you might need other roles, other people to deliver these solutions. Maybe stakeholders aren't quite aware of those new roles, those new budget requirements, because obviously if you want machine learning that has other components to it, um, you have other ops constraints, there's other you know the pieces that can fit into the, the solution. When you're t- talking about budget get, budgets against you know this longer term roadmap and, and vision of getting to more advanced capabilities, how, how do you set the expectation to, to, to make sure nobody gets sticker shock down the road? <laughs> So thankfully, at like Viral Gains, at least I haven't had this issue where like we've had um, a pretty solid engineering team that's also built production-grade ML systems. So the, the the change really isn't like a step function of um, I need ten more machine learning engineers to actually make this work. We already have an engineering team that's already deployed models in productions, uh, the models that are working, generating value. Um, so it hasn't been an issue here. But I have seen this happen in other places where uh, business leaders come to the science teams and say, this would be cool. And then we go back to them and say, hey, our team is already staffed to do these 10 things. If you want the next 10 things, we need to staff up with more machine learning engineering, more data engineering. Like it's it's not just one thing, right? Like, it's, like, the, like I said, this, this whole system that requires more work to continue delivering value. So then the question becomes, do we drop one of the 10 things that we're already doing to do this next thing? Or do we hire incremental headcount because we truly believe in? So that's where it is very important for like the data leaders and the business leaders to sit together and figure out, sort of stack ranking them based on effort to outcome, right? Like how much effort is this going to be and what is the expected outcome? Again, they're very sort of hand wavy. They're like not super scientific, like, um, but we try to make it as scientific as we can sort of like have some baselines for believing in some values. And um, maybe there are some past projects where you can drive value from. And if you, again, if you come from a company where there's like a history of experimentation, you can basically point to it and say, we run these 10 experiments. This is how much value we derived of those experiments. This is what we believe is like a reasonable ballpark figure for this, the value that you can derive out of this project, then you stack rank them and then say, okay, the the bottom one with like the the highest ratio of effort to outcome um, goes goes out, right? Like it's a it's a it's a constant prioritization exercise, um, making sure that you're always working on the things that deliver the most value for the least amount of effort, essentially. Yeah, it makes sense. I, I guess you know um, p- part of your process emits different within the data space, the data science, machine learning, than other disciplines is the uh, speed of change, how quickly new models and how new theories come up as you, but you know, you, you obviously need a roadmap and you need to have that vision of capabilities. 
how does your team or you who allocates some t- time to make sure that there's i don't know if it's r&d but there's some you know uh awareness of what's coming down and how that might fit into the future plans and impact maybe future plans exactly that's a great question so it is something i do personally and i think it's something someone in the organization should be responsible for this right like it's a uh, data science and machine learning are still you 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 call it perfectly it's it's an r and d function right like it's still there's a lot of development but there's also a lot of research right and what that means is for me personally just like reading academic papers like what's come out what are people doing um just like keeping up to date with like progress that's happening in the world of machine learning right like um once chat gpt came out the volume of research that's coming out is just been mind blowing like very recently i read this paper again uh, when once google released that uh, attention is all you need paper there's so many papers with the same sort of title formatting x is all you need so i read this paper that says textbooks is all you need so what they did was it's actually a smaller model but trained only on high quality textbooks right and they found that it outperforms re- even really large models like gpt4 right like it's a uh, so the idea of being able to train narrow but very focused models potentially will outperform really large general purpose models right um, that was a cool learning for me so then i was like okay maybe we can use this somehow right like train a small llama 2 model to do just this one thing like fine tuning a llama 2 model with like data from this specific domain to see if it outperforms generally what we get from let's say a custom chat gpt right like that's that's an idea that we should definitely experiment with right so just making sure that you're like keeping up to date by like reading research that's coming out uh, another example is just like um once gpt 3 came out a lot of nlp work i i don't want to say like there's so many teams doing like really cool nlp work and i don't want to say their work became obsolete overnight but it was just it just became so much easier to um use these pre-trained models to do what would have otherwise taken a team of nlp engineers right like it just uh, there was a significant change in the ability to use these pre-trained models to do things that would have previously taken like a team of engineers months of work right so it's just uh, making sure that like you're abreast of changes that are coming reading research papers finding out what are the use cases for these new technologies that are coming and sort of running some small scale experiments again you you cannot dedicate your whole team okay stop everything you're doing go work only on gpt models that's that's not going to work but like you can at least find out okay let's run, let, let's let's run some small scale experiments let's train a small llama 2 model with just marketing specific domain specific data see how that model does against some baseline gpt ask a bunch of questions see what it comes up with right so it's uh, just having that i like knowledge of what's happening in the world and like being open to like running some small scale experiments in house to see how you derive value out of academic research i i like i i call this uh, uh, uh generating uh, or it's it's like a uh bringing information from the ivory tower to the boardroom right like academic research produces tons of value but to actually translate that to business value you have to do some tinkering on the side if you will right like it's uh yeah i guess you know it's interesting cuz um you know software engineering um the 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 life cycle obviously there's 
there's different methodologies of how to deliver, but, but the more modern methodologies have been around and there's an understanding. I think most stakeholders, if they said we need this, probably don't assume it's done tomorrow. Like there's, there's, there's development, there's, you got to do requirements, testing, there's all those things that have to go into producing uh, a, a, whatever functionality to go live. When it comes to data and, and specifically we're looking at, obviously you know, data science, machine learning, AI solutions, stakeholders can, you know, quite easily, as you said, you know, you look at these chat GP and these GPT models, look at that, maybe using it in their personal life and misconstrue how quickly that becomes accessible because some of what you've talked about, the R&D alone, doing some experimentation, making sure it's the right solution, that all takes time. Do we need to, on the data side, because obviously it's on, from, from the looks of it, data's gone from, okay, reporting was already complex because it's difficult to translate that in from data to the business world. But now we've made it infinitely more complex because now we want machines to interpret and provide these inputs and feedback. Is there going to be some kind of, you know, at some point where we can see a level setting of expectations more in line with what we see with software engineering? Because there is a def definitive life cycle when it comes to ML, AI projects. I mean, what are your thoughts there? I think compared to like the world of software engineering, um, the world of data science and machine learning at large is not as mature, right? So both from like the business stakeholders and from like the practitioners, I think leaders have to spend a lot of time sort of expectation setting and level setting with their business stakeholders, making sure that you understand one of the, like the thing we discussed earlier about the, the lead time for impact. And the other thing is the expectation that um, there, I think there was a, there's a company that got acquired by um, Databricks. Um, in a sense, what they're trying to do is sort of have something called like something like an analyst in a box, right? Like it's, it's a natural language interface to all of your data that's pre-aggregated. Let's say previously, what would have been data aggregated into dashboards and reports. Now the same thing is feeding this, let's say analyst in a box where business users can go and query in natural language. Hey, how many users did this last week? And then it just comes back with an answer for you. And then you can start asking more deep type questions, ask it to make visualizations and that expectation um, the path to actually delivering that where one, you trust the quality of the data that's coming out because you have to trust the quality of the data that's going in, right? Like it's, um, it, it's a, I don't think we're there yet to a point where this whole system can be completely automated and trustworthy at the same time, right? You have to have humans testing data pipelines, humans testing these aggregations and reporting, making sure that like the numbers are saying what, the user is likely to interpret it as, right? And then uh, making sure that the, uh, the visualizations that are coming out of this tool are representative, like, like there's some basic sort of data visualization do's and don'ts, right? Like start your access at zero, or like don't have, like, uh, you, like you use like good language of data, right? Like it's a language of visualizations. Those things would require some human feedback, I think. The expectations from business teams to how quickly we can deliver value with Gen AI to actually understanding the manual steps involved in every step of the way to actually get to that value, there needs to be clear communication from practitioners to the business stakeholders. Right? Like it has to be, um, and over time, 
just like software engineering did, you'll get sort of generic expectations of, okay, like a feature of this size, this is how many story points I need, which translates to uh, this many days, which translates to this much lead time to actually deliver the product. I think we will get there eventually, but I don't think we're anywhere close just because of the complexity and like the changing nature of this domain, right? Like we're not at a point where you can clearly say this is a two-story point task for data science team. You can, but I won't really trust it. <laughs> I, I like that. Yeah, and I think I, yeah, and I think 100%. It's early days. Um, like you said, in the last year, more research has come out because of uh, ChatGPT, and you know, it, there it, to me, there's always going to be a component of that R and D that doesn't sit in software engineering because. No one's inventing a programming language within a company or, you know, they don't develop, get developed that quick. It's a slow process. You do see frameworks in you know, the JavaScript world. So I think it's going to be interesting to see how a model of delivering data solutions will alter because you've talked about fundamentals. You've talked about moving into more complicated solutions, the full robust solution where you still need to trust data quality and accuracy, what's going in, what's coming out. I think there's going to be different roles i have to kind of believe there'll be different roles for these solutions because you know we're not even going to talk about quality and accuracy and all those things now but i can't imagine these teams are going to get to be really robust and we're going to probably have roles that we haven't even envisioned yet as those ancillary complementary positions to help execute these projects i think it's going to be pretty darn exciting yeah absolutely i think this we're already starting to see some of that with like software tool providers that operate in like different avenues of this this value chain right like this there's companies that work completely on the data quality sort of data observer like the, the the observability of like the quality of data that's coming through and then there are companies that are doing just like ml ops com- companies that just do tracking of a bunch of experiments there's so many open source tools that do that now like a- like aws azure everybody's coming with these services to do just ml ops and then there's going to be some sort of, I think, like or like prompt engineering, right? Like it's a, it's going to be someone's job to make sure that it's like if you give this prompt, you expect this answer. Like that's exactly what's happening, rather than um, like every time you ask it a different, ask you the same question, like it comes up with two different answers, and it's like you know, it's uh, making sure that like the the, the value of um, the the relationship between prompts and responses in this business context actually makes sense. There has to be some new role like whose function is to just like ask questions, find out answers, like, no, 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 this is not what I want. Go back and change it. And then, you know, like making that human feedback, reinforcement learning system actually work for this specific business context. There has to be some that has that I, I envision that being someone's full-time job, right? Like you're just sitting and asking questions, getting answers and then saying, no, 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 go back, change this, change this, change this. And like, which means you have to be an expert in that domain. You have to be an expert in that data. So it's a very fascinating very fascinating times we live in. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, I, I was talking to somebody about Google search results and I'm like, and you look at what ChatGBT does and Alexa does, a lot of it is one answer responses. I go, we've now spent a decade plus used to Google serving pages of results. In a way, we've gotten good. We've developed our own internal machine learning to go through those pages, interpret which ones are good, how many pages to go through. It, we're going to be shifting to this. If, if we're shifting to these models where one answer is what I get, 
I'm not giving up that power, that 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 authority over. Is that the correct answer? Because I don't know what the alternatives are. It's pick what it thinks it's the best. I I find that fascinating because I don't think anyone goes to Google or their favorite search engine. The first result that comes up in the first spot goes, "That's it. I'm stopping right there." If anybody does, I'd, I'd love to talk to them. But we all go at least four or five page, you know, links deep, maybe four pages deep, when we're searching for an answer to a problem. I think I'm very fascinated how people are going to start changing and uh, to be comfortable with this answer is right. Yeah, it's, I mean, I, I think it's still early. We've only had it for a year, but I, I, I look at that and I go, man, you know, how long is it going to take for us to be able to really trust one answer? I, heck, when when somebody you know tells you something, you still aren't 100 percent sure, even though they're an expert. You're like, are you sure? You know. But anyway, so sorry about that. Yeah, that's just digressing there. No, no, it's a, that's a great point. Like I think very recently, the the problem of like LLMs hallucinating, right? Like it's a, like it's a. There, there. Uh, maybe a few months ago, there was this uh, example of some lawyer using ChatGPT to like write his brief, and it ended up quoting cases that actually didn't even exist. It's like none of this thing, none of this is true, and that this person, without validating the responses from ChatGPT, just ended up submitting like a like a legal uh like legal paperwork that was based on cases that didn't even exist so it's like <laughs> like in that one answer paradigm right like whose job is it to validate that one answer like i think we have to get better at sort of uh, uh sniff testing the answer and being like hmm, this stuff is, this doesn't smell right like i need i need to find out more and then like you take that information go google it and like find okay what are what are some sources that are saying the same thing and they have to be reliable sources it cannot be like Amir and Vinith.com say this, right? Like it's, uh, it's <laughs> it, it has to be something that's, yeah, it's, it's going to be fascinating how this like world of like the one answers and like whose job is it to validate that one answer is, uh, yeah, great. Yeah. Fun thought exercise. Yeah, no, we'll, we'll have to see how that, like, I'm, I'm excited to see how, uh, how all that plays out, how, how financial models change with all that. But, um, Hey, Vinith, I know, I know you got to go back to getting stuff done. So I, I, I appreciate your time. Uh, all your insights have been great. Um, if somebody wants to reach out to you to just you know, pick up on the conversation, uh, what is a good way of connecting with you? Yeah, they can find me on LinkedIn, find me on Twitter, DM me on Twitter, LinkedIn. I'm usually responsive. So um, yeah, they're, they're both okay. good avenues to reach me. Perfect. We'll, we'll include uh, those on uh, the show note links so people can do that. Uh, and again, thank you for coming on. Thank you for sharing. Um, that's it for this episode. We'll be back again, different guests, different topic. Until then, two things. One, really cool topic, honestly. Um, you know, we're, we're kind of getting a little bit of insight in terms of, you know, someone, you know, Vanith has just started this role. He's kind of formulating strategies. He's, he's shared with us a little bit of that process. It's been cool. And then another insight. Uh, so share this with somebody else who likes uh, the data machine learning space. I think uh, a lot of value and also, Hey, like subscribe, comment, leave me a review. Let us know how we're doing. Uh, I always want that feedback. I appreciate it until next time. Thank you. And goodbye.